0: Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This one from our Mysteries series is titled The Knights Templar, Crusaders or Conspirators. This special episode hosted by Dante Stack, our expert on all things involving the Middle Ages, provides a fascinating history of the much aligned Christian warrior society known as as the Knights Templar, who were rescued from the dim pages of history by author Dan Brown in his book, The Da Vinci Code, and have entered the conspiracy theorist mainstream today in a variety of characterizations, ranging from a secret cabal of high-stakes financiers puppeteering the world economy, to a white Christian racist society bent upon world domination. We'll let you decide after hearing this podcast— You're invited to share your opinions at Facebook.com slash 1001Heroes, and you can catch up on all our episodes at 1001StoriesPodcast.com. So, Dante, the Knights Templar, heroic crusaders, satanic cult, or a secret cabal of high-stakes financiers controlling the world economy?
1: On July 26th, just a couple of weeks before the recording of this podcast, a nine-foot-tall statue was unveiled in downtown Detroit. Detroit was chosen because the first place that this statue was originally supposed to be unveiled or revealed to the public was right beside a giant statue of the Ten Commandments at the Oklahoma State Capitol. This meticulously made, very artistic, nine-foot-tall statue was licensed and created by members of the Satanic Temple which is, believe it or not, a current religious order in America. The statue is of the god that we call Baphomet. Essentially, it's a half-goat, half-man type of creature that, that specifically at the beginning of the 20th century, renowned Satanist Alistair Crowley took as kind of the main idol, the main portrait, the main image of Satanism in the modern day. This god or demon, Baphomet, first shows up in history as an actual idol or thing to be worshipped during the trial of the Knights of the Templar in the 14th century. Welcome to another exciting, if not terrifying, episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. I am your guest host this week, Dante Stack. You can label this episode really in... Three categories, either a legend, a history, or as a mystery. We've entitled this episode, The Knights Templar, Crusaders or Conspirators? And I'm not going to answer that question for you. I'm just going to lay out the facts as I see them, as we see them, and you can come to your own conclusion about that. The Knights Templar, for a litany of reasons, happens to be one of those things that is on every conspiracy theorist's list of... You know, megalomaniacal secret societies that are actually running the world today. Or ancient societies that were always trying to pervert the flow of history or trying to change everyone and doing evil things and making backdoor deals that we don't really know about. And as we'll soon see, there are certain good reasons for thinking that the Knights Templar were evil, at least evil according to, you know, medieval Europe or or the general culture in the West at the time of their existence, which was roughly just over 200 years, from the 11th century to the beginnings of the 14th century. So this is all about letting you decide here, with a little more information perhaps than you had beforehand, what you want to think of this group. Maybe you'll come out of this and be even more convinced that the Knights Templar are, you know, connected to the Illuminati and actually the puppeteers of all of our governments and finances the world over. Or maybe you'll fall in the line of, no, actually, the Knights Templar were an honest group of people trying to do what, at least in their minds, was a noble thing, and they were unfairly persecuted for that. Or maybe you'll land somewhere in between those two extremes. But in order to understand the Knights Templar, we really have to try to dig into what it must have felt like to live in Europe, especially to be someone of power, at the tail end of the 11th century. So even the name, the Knights Templar, what is that referring to? It's referring to the temple, specifically Solomon's temple, or the temple generally associated with the Jewish faith and with Christianity. So way back in the day, somewhere around 1000 BCE, King Solomon ruled Israel and he commissioned the temple to be built. And the temple and the Jewish faith was the centermost point of religious conviction and zeal. It's also where the Ark of the Covenant was to reside, the most cherished artifact of Judaism. And if you haven't listened, we have done an episode on the Ark of the Covenant already. So according to the Old Testament and Jewish tradition, Solomon's temple was huge and vastly rich. Gold everywhere, and Solomon kept a treasure trove of wonderful costly ornaments and things from the ancient world within the walls of that temple. And the only problem is, the only problem is a few hundred years later, the Babylonians raid the temple, destroy it. Eventually, the temple's rebuilt, but not very nicely, or at least not nice compared to Solomon's temple. And that too, roughly around 90 AD, it is destroyed, leaving only the western wall of the temple, what we call today the Wailing Wall, which obviously still stands in Jerusalem today. For obvious reasons, this site where the Wailing Wall is, and Jerusalem in general, would be highly valued as a place of pilgrimage for Christians. Once Rome becomes Christianized, this becomes a really big deal. The only problem is, in the 600s, we have the rise of Islam, and very soon thereafter, Arab people groups that were converted to Islam take over... Pretty much all of the Middle East, including Jerusalem, and they build the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is the third most holy spot in all of Islam, pretty much right where the temple was. Nowadays, we refer to that as the Dome of the Rock, which you can see in any picture of Jerusalem, pretty much, because it's this big, round, huge dome. And certain Zionists and Christians have been wanting to destroy this Dome of the Rock, this heart of Islamic faith, for years and centuries so that they can destroy that and rebuild the temple as it originally was, rebuild Solomon's temple, that is, and worship God in the way that the Jews once did. But back in the medieval world, after the fall of Rome, you have this medieval age where you have all these different countries and bands and Germanic tribes all kind of disliking each other and raiding each other and taking over each other's lands, but all centralized by a Catholic faith. The only uniting principle in all of Europe is Christianity. Furthermore, all of Europe in Christianity has a common enemy in Islam. And by the 1090s, you have a group called the Seljuk Turks, which are pushing further and further west and further and further north up from the Middle East. And at this point, Rome or the Holy Roman Empire has gone through its great schism. So we have the Latin Holy Roman Empire, let's call it, and the Greek-speaking Byzantines, which call Constantinople their home that don't follow the Pope in Rome, but are still, you know, kind of of the same ilk, of the same Christian tradition. And then you have all of Europe that follows under the papal decrees, the papal bulls of the Pope. And pretty much we have the Pope rising in power, rising through the ranks of becoming almost something akin to a monarch in that he wields more power than any one monarch because all the monarchs, all the rulers of the different nations in Europe actually listen to the Pope. Whereas, during that time period, you don't have a Napoleon or a Hitler or a one strong monarch power that can ramrod his way through all of Europe and make all of Europe bow down to him. Thus, the Pope has a tremendous amount of influence. So, we're in the 1090s, and these Seljuk Turks are pushing through what's now modern-day Turkey, pretty much to the gates of Constantinople, to the point where pretty much everything east of of the Bosphorus, which today, if you go to Istanbul, the Bosphorus separates European Turkey from Asian Turkey. It's the dividing line between Europe and Asia at that southern border. Pretty much, these Turks had gone up to that point. So the Byzantines, Greek-speaking Byzantines, even though they just went through this great schism, are coming to the Pope and saying, will you help us fight these Seljuk Turks? Will you help us save Christian lands? Now, the Pope at this point in time is a guy called Urban II. In Urban II, he must have had an imagination. He must have been a dreamer because he takes this need for help and he pushes it into a direction that I can totally see why people fell in love with it. He commissions the First Crusade. Oh, I should also note that there are several lands that were very important also to Latin Romans. For example, the nation of Armenia was conquered by the Seljuk Turks in the 11th century. Armenia was the first nation on earth to accept Christianity as its national religion. Before Rome Christianized, Armenia was Christianized. So the fact that this Christian place, the first place where all of Europe's religion took root, took really a base, has been conquered by these pagans, these foreign nomads. That's very frightening. Perhaps worse still, Nicaea, which is in present-day Turkey, was also taken over. In 325 AD, we have the Council of Nicaea, which many people look to as, you know, the big stamp mark when Christianity becomes an eternal force in history. That's the Council Constantine commissions and is really the beginning of Christianity as an organized religion with international structure. And Nicaea, that famous place, has now been completely taken over by these Islamic people. So if you're like me, you've probably been taught that the Crusades were... horrible, horrible thing from beginning to end. And it's one of the worst black marks on Europe's history. And I don't want to push back on that too hard, but I do want us to take a moment and just envision how seductive that idea could have been. The first crusade was like the first UN, the first United Nations. Here you have all these countries, all these feudal lands, where no one can agree on anything, and it seems like every generation is fighting the battles of the last generation, and there's just ongoing squabbles about the tedium of life, constantly. And there's no uniformity on anything, and no common goal for any of these so-called love-your-neighbor-as-yourself Christians, right? So Urban sees this, and he thinks, okay, here's an opportunity. We can come together and actually fight an honorable war. These guys are clearly on the wrong. The raiders, they've come into our lands, they don't worship our God, and they just destroy us. They've come in and they've overtaken the land of our Savior, Jerusalem, where our God, Jesus Christ, died for us. We gotta go together, we can do this, we can take this back. So in 1095, Pope Urban II calls upon all of Europe to come join in this crusade, this epic quest, to go and take back the Holy Lands. Here's a translation of some of the things he said. as is Pope Urban II. As most of you have heard, the Turks and Arabs have attacked the Holy Lands and have conquered the territory of Romania, the Byzantine Empire, as far west as the shore of the Mediterranean and the Hellespont, which is called the Arm of St. George. They have occupied more and more of the lands of those Christians and have overcome them in seven battles. They have killed and captured many and have destroyed the churches and devastated the empire. Let those who have been accustomed unjustly to wage private warfare against the faithful now go against the infidels and end with victory this war which should have begun long ago. Let those who for a long time have been robbers now become knights. Let those who have been fighting against their brothers and relatives now fight in a proper way against the barbarians. Let those who have been serving as mercenaries for small pay now obtain the eternal reward. But those who have been wearing themselves out in both body and soul now work for the double honor. Can you see how seductive that was? Urban II vows that anyone who goes on this crusade and fights, if you've been excommunicated, here's a chance to be unexcommunicated. If you want to go straight to heaven, here's your holy ticket. This gets you a one way ticket to heaven to fight and to die and to sacrifice for the eternal reward. Pope Urban II was granting clemency for whatever sin you've committed. And this wasn't a Vietnam situation, people. This wasn't a draft. People didn't hear the Pope's words and go like, Ugh, I'm 18 years old, I'm going to have to dodge this and drive to Scandinavia to avoid the draft of going and fighting in the Holy Lands. Ugh. No, they were excited. Their hearts were on fire for the hope of salvation for themselves. And more than that, you know, he talks about a double honor here. There also had to be the hope of, you know, the spoils of war. Whatever you found down there in the Holy Lands, you could take back. Sure, why not? And this is the stage that the First Crusade is set under. And it's highly successful. By the thousands, people came together, and they took a path that led them straight to the gates of Jerusalem, and they battered Jerusalem, and they took Jerusalem back. And like that, in the matter of just a couple years after Pope Urban II offers this decree, Jerusalem is under the seal of the Holy Roman Empire. And out of the ashes of this highly successful first crusade comes the emergence of orders of knights. Specifically, our knights, the Knights Templar. So it didn't take long after Jerusalem and the Holy Lands were under the safeguard of the Holy Roman Empire that everybody wanted to go visit it. Everyone wanted to go see where Jesus walked on earth. They wanted to take pilgrimages there. But the problem was, despite it being under European rule, it was kind of like the wild, wild west. There were tons of robbers and mercenaries and black market people that would come and kidnap your children while you're going on pilgrimage and then sell you back your child all along the roads leading up to Jerusalem. There was no standing army to protect people on their way. There were no cops or sheriffs to keep things under control in the ancient world. Uh, We have writings from one Russian abbot, named Daniel, that made his way on a pilgrimage, the road of it in this way. And there are many springs here. Travelers rest by the water, but with great fear. For it is a deserted place, and nearby is the town of Ascalon, from which Saracens sally forth and kill travelers on these roads. There is a great fear, too, going up from that place into the hills. Then speaking of Galilee, where Jesus was from, this place is very dreadful and dangerous. Many tall palm trees stand about the town like a dense forest. This place is terrible and difficult of access, for here live fierce pagan Saracens who attack travelers at the fords. So you had all these little bandit things happening and people being murdered on their way to pilgrimage. They kept going on. And then just 13 years after the First Crusade ended, you have 700 people that were going on a pilgrimage. 700 at one time. And on Easter Sunday, while these 700 pilgrims were waiting in the Jordan River, the river that Jesus was baptized in, They were attacked, and right away, 400 of them are slaughtered, and about 150 are taken captive. That's a statement of war. So a couple of things need to happen. Thing one, there needs to be another crusade, because the lands aren't cleared of evil yet. Thing two, but if we had people that were stationed along the myriad paths to the Holy Land, that were there to protect the lands, that could be trusted, that could safeguard the journey then maybe horrible things like this wouldn't happen. And out of this came several orders of knights. The Knights Templar weren't the only one. There was, to be sure, a rival order that was probably just as powerful as them, called the Hospitallers. I'll speak on them a little bit later. Uh, But there was also the Teutonic Knights that were specifically, you know, German, Germanic peoples. Also one I came across that I have to mention here called the Order of St. Lazarus. And this was an order of knights that your initiation fee or your way of becoming a member was that you had to have leprosy. So they were just a bunch of lepritic knights walking around. And I can just imagine fighting a battle against a bunch of knights, all of which have leprosy, you know? They're fighting you and their arms are falling off as they're going up against you. It's like fighting a zombie army. That would be terrifying. But anyway, on Christmas Day, on 11-19... A.D. or C.E. if you prefer to use that nomenclature, the order of the poor knights of the Temple of Solomon was recognized. It started with just nine guys, and initially they seemed to be just monks that took a vow of poverty, that were extremely zealous in their religious fervor, that also took oaths to protect, specifically, the, the Temple Mount, the temple where Solomon's temple was, and the surrounding regions. But it was just nine people, and they vowed poverty, so they weren't rich young rulers, they were just regular dudes that wanted to protect the land. Now right away, specifically the first nine years, we have almost no record of what the Knights Templar did. So a lot of the speculation, a lot of the conspiracy theories, come right from the beginning. Some speculation says that because the First Crusade was successful, and because the Crusaders were able to raid the local mosques and able to raid the area around where the Temple Mount was, that maybe certain artifacts were found initially, and that the Knights Templar found maybe the Holy Grail. You know, that's the cup that Jesus drank from and that supposedly his blood dripped into, or that they found the Ark of the Covenant. And that actually the Knights Templar came into being to protect those artifacts. But we really don't have any evidence of that. We have nothing to directly point us in that direction. All we know is that these guys took a vow of poverty and they were going to protect the land areas. Pretty much the same sort of vows that the other Order of Knights were doing around the same time period. There didn't seem to be anything that particularly stood out about the Knights Templar that was evil or megalomaniacal, one would say. But nine years after the Order was recognized, after these first nine guys became members of the Knights Templar, the Grand Master of the Knights Templar, which that name for your ruler does make you sound evil, I have to just give you that. that The leader of the Knights Templar was called the Grand Master. That sounds weird. But anyway, this guy, along with some of the other knights, took a diplomatic journey to almost all the rulers of Europe. And it seemed like they were on this journey to fashion favor for the Knights Templar, maybe recruit more knights, but perhaps most importantly, to convince the leaders and the new pope to do a second crusade. Now there's the area of Damascus, which is in present-day Lebanon, which was still occupied by Turkish troops that the Knights Templar thought needed to be vanquished, needed to be conquered. And since the First Crusade worked so well, why not do it again? And it would seem that this Grand Master of the Knights Templar was a very charismatic man. Because everywhere he went, people started giving him and the Knights Templar a bunch of stuff. And more than that, there was also a council meeting with the Pope and several other religious leaders that tried to set in stone the way in which the Knights Templar would live. And they wrote down 73 clauses that pretty much dictated every facet of Knights Templar life. They were going to live pretty much just like monks, and they had all these orders of all the type of stuff they had to do or not do. And more than anything else, if you read this list, it comes across as a highly disciplined religious sect. It it doesn't come across as something that's power-hungry or that has some sort of other agenda. Here's a quote from one of the guys at that council. He said, It is useless indeed for us to attack exterior enemies if we do not first conquer those of the interior. Let us first purge our souls of vices, then the lands from the barbarians. So these 73 clauses were all put in place so that the knights would be as unstained and as pure as possible. The people of the time, they saw the success of the first crusade as a wink from God that Europe's doing things the right way. They're doing things in a godly manner. God gave back Jerusalem to them because they did it righteously. And so there was also this counterfear that if we become unrighteous, we're going to start losing. So if the Knights Templar are the guys that are going to keep the Holy Lands safe from pagans, keep the Holy Lands secure, then they have to be the most righteous among us. So we need to come up with a disciplined criteria by which these people live. And the 73 clauses go into all sorts of details about the type of dress they could use, when they could ride horses, when they could go to bed, when they had to wake up and recite prayers. For instance, there was no idle talk around, so they couldn't just talk to one another. They were only allowed certain parts of the day that they could talk to one another. For instance, meal times, you were not allowed to say anything. You had to have your meals in complete silence. But then, somehow, hot on the heels of this council, the biggest thing happened. And this is the big game-changer for the Knights Templar. The Pope issued three papal bulls, and a papal bull is like a letter written by the Pope that is now to become law. And in these papal bulls, he exempted the Knights from having to give any tithes whatsoever to the church, which was a big deal for the time. And that's also saying that the Knights themselves have religious authority. He also said they could keep any booty that they keep from any sort of conquering of pagan lands. He ordered that they must remain vigilant in their faith, and they must be above any reproach from anyone. So no one could say anything bad about the Templars, because they had to be of such high esteem. But the big one, the big papal bull here that changed everything, was that they were only answerable to the Pope. No king, no landowner could order the Knights Templar to do anything. They were only answerable to the Pope himself. Sometime after this, the Second Crusade got underway, and... It ended up being a pretty miserable failure. They did not take Damascus, and they put into motion the type of losses that would soon lead to losing Jerusalem itself. But wherein the crusade itself was an absolute failure as far as accomplishing its agenda, you have to look at it and see, wow, the Knights Templar came out of that second crusade really well. For one, the Knights Templar were proven to be excellent fighters. And they fought in a very simple military tactic that probably mirrored a lot of other approaches to military battlefield tactics of the day. However, they did it just better than everybody else. They would have archers, axemen, spearmen that acted mostly in just a way to distract the opposing army from their main assault, which were mounted knights. Now, the Knights Templar managed to get the tallest horses and the meanest horses... There's accounts of their horses tearing out throat of opposing armies with their mouths like the the horses themselves were vicious and would you know eat you alive if they could. I don't know how they raised the horses to to have that type of mentality, but they did and you got to picture these mounted knights as the tanks of the day, you know they got the super long spears and they're riding on top of these giant beasts, and when they run in formation there's just no way to stop that. The only caveat. The only way that would lead to failure for this battle tactic was if the timing was off. If for some reason the ranks didn't all come in file, and your suppressive fire from the archers or your axemen didn't work or came at the wrong time, if for some reason you could separate these tanks from one another, then maybe you would have a chance to take them down. Saladin, who comes into the story as pretty much the bigwig Islamic force, He had a decree. He was a pretty lenient guy when it came to being nice to POWs and just treating the opposing forces with honor and dignity. But when it came to the Knights Templar, he had an executive decision that if you caught a Knights Templar, you didn't try to ransom him for money. You didn't try to do anything. You killed him. You executed all captured Knights Templar. No mercy whatsoever for them. And I think that was because the Knights Templar instilled such fear in whoever they were fighting. So one, Knights Templar were outrageous fighters, and they also fought with such a zeal, it's been written many times over that they had a suicidal mentality about their fierceness. Secondly, the Knights Templar were great architects. Because they had to protect all these territories from Europe down to Jerusalem, they built wonderfully complex garrisons, and they built magnificent structures and castles to protect their lands. And they became quite renowned for having the best architects of the day. Thirdly, and most importantly, they established pretty much the first international bank. And the way it worked was this. Say you're a Parisian and you want to go on the Second Crusade, but you can't carry everything with you from Paris down to Jerusalem because carrying all the stuff and the coinage and the food and the habitats for living, all that's going to just take way too much time and logistics to move. So you work out a deal with your local chapter of the Knights Templar that's located in Paris, that, hey, I'm giving you 10,000 coins, write me a note that I can show to other temple guards along the path, and they'll honor this. And that's what they did. They had a Pony Express-type system of bank loans. Now you might ask, okay, why are there Knights Templars in Paris? Well, another thing that would happen is, before someone would go on crusade, and crusades were very costly, they would either donate their lands to the Knights Templar, or they would say something like, hold my lands, pay rent on them for me while I'm gone, and if I die, you inherit it. That was kind of the payment system. If I die, you get it. Otherwise, it's an even split. And so out of this, the Knights Templar just accumulated large swaths of land, both in Europe and on the track of the Holy Lands. And a lot of people died on the Crusades, so they kept inheriting more and more land and more and more stuff. They got to be such great bankers that they would have more money, more stuff than whole nations would have. Louis VII, who was king of France, himself needed a loan of 30,000 liras from the bank, which, according to history, it nearly bankrupted the Knights Templar at that time to, to give him that loan, but they were able to do it. And just in a couple generations, Louis IX, the great-grandson of Louis VII, who took that loan, during the horrible Seventh Crusade, he was taken hostage by enemy forces. And the enemy forces wanted 300,000 liras. So tenfold what Louis VII wanted to free this king, Louis IX, from hostage. And the Knights Templar paid it. And at that point, it seemed like it wasn't even that big of a deal for them. So they're accumulating wealth. They're accumulating land. You can see why... People would be suspicious of them. This non-nation, not-quite-Catholic-papacy, not-quite-Orthodox group that isn't necessarily attached to anyone, besides maybe the Pope himself, is just becoming more and more powerful because they're absorbing all this stuff. And we don't have time to go into the history of the Crusades here. But long story short, after the first crusade, nothing really good happens for Europe whenever they go on these crusades. Every subsequent crusade is pretty much bad. Bad stuff happens, and rather than gaining back lands, the crusaders keep losing more and more lands, and the Islamic forces are pushing further and further north, up into Europe. Add to that, by the later half of the 13th century, you got the Black Plague. You got people just dropping in the streets. So I mentioned earlier that Jerusalem itself falls, so the Knights Templar have to move their base of operation. Even though they're the Knights of the Temple of Solomon, they're no longer watching over the Temple of Solomon. They moved to a place called Acre, and slowly lost that place as well. But because of all this losing of land, all the orders of Knights have to keep changing the way they do things, and they keep moving north and further up into, like, the bosom of Europe. The Knights Templar eventually relocate to the island of Cyprus, And this is not making Italians and Europeans very happy, because you're the guys that are supposed to be in the far crazy lands, in the wild, wild west, you know, not in our backyards. I don't like that you have all this money, you have these crazy, scary garrisons, and you're the best fighters in all of Europe, and you're right next door. That makes me feel uncomfortable about myself. And unfortunately for the Knights Templar, the other orders figured out how to maneuver these waters. The Hospitallers, which I mentioned at the beginning, they became a maritime people. And they took to the waters. And you can see them even later in history. They become part of the group of the Great Exploration in Portugal and all that. The Teutonic Knights, they say, hey, we're all about fighting the Baltic pagans. So we're going to go up and fight wars and crusades up in Scandinavia. We'll stay out of your hair, Europe. Well, the Knights Templar, they have these banks. They have all these roots in Europe. They can't just go out into the land. So what are they going to do? Well, at the beginning of the 14th century, the Pope has an idea. He calls the Grand Master of the time, Jacques de Molay, Grand Master, again, being the leader of the Knights Templar. And he proposes that the Knights Templar merge with the Hospitallers, or the Teutonic Knights, that we don't need all these orders of knights around anymore, so, so you should merge with one of these other orders that actually have their stuff together and have a plan of attack, and that way, that'll keep everyone off your back. Jacques de Molay... Says, no deal, Pope. I don't like it. Thanks, but no thanks. But, while I have your attention, there's a couple issues we have to look over. Way back when, 150 years back, one of the Papal Bulls said, the knights need to be above reproach in all regard. Well, there had been some excommunicated members of the Knights Templar, disenfranchised knights, who, according to Jacques de Molay, they had moral failings themselves but they were saying that during the initiation rites, during the process of becoming a Knights Templar, that heresies and evil things were taking place. So Jacques said, Hey Pope, you're the bigwig here. If you could investigate this and come back and tell the people that the Knights Templar are clean and have nothing to do with any of these horrible insinuations that these disenfranchised excommunicates are saying, that'd be great. So the Pope says, Okay, I'll look into that. And unfortunately... In his communicating and in his research of this, he comes into communication with Philip IV, King of France. Now, Philip, by every account, was a nasty human being. He had actually kidnapped the Pope prior to this guy. This guy was Pope Clement. He had kidnapped Pope Boniface right before this, and pretty much just was extorting Pope Boniface for money. Unfortunately, in his kidnapping of the Pope, the Pope died of shock, so that didn't really work. But King Philip had a problem. He was in massive, massive debt. His nation was falling apart. France was a wreck. And he's the bigwig. The buck stops with him. So he happens to cast his eye on the multinational group that happens to have more money than anyone else in all of Europe. And doesn't seem to be serving a purpose anymore. So once he hears that the Pope is investigating this claim of heresy, he goes ahead and he arrests 12 Knights Templar. He does this on October 13th, 1307, which was a Friday. Let me read here this paragraph from the book called The Knights Templar The History and Myths of the Legendary Military Order by Sean Martin. Mr. Martin writes The eminent 19th century Catholic theologian and historian, Ignaz Dollinger, was once asked what he thought was the most evil day in history. He did not hesitate in his reply. It was Friday, the 13th, October 1307, the day the Templars were arrested in France. The feeling that the arrests were a criminal act of unparalleled dimensions were felt at the time. Dante compared Philip IV to Pontius Pilate and charged him with avarice in the Purgatorio. And the subsequent myths surrounding the Templars got off to a very quick start. This, ladies and gentlemen, this Friday the 13th is most likely where we get our mythology of Friday the 13th being an evil day. This is the day the Templars were taken down. What Philip does is he arrests these Knights Templar. Preeminent among them, by the way, was the Grand Master himself, Jacques de Molay. And he tortures them relentlessly. And of course, you can imagine, under extreme duress, under torture, you're going to say whatever they want you to say. One of the tortured Knights would later say that he would have said he slayed God himself with his bare hands if it would stop him from being tortured. But here, I'll read from that same book again. Here is what the Templars confessed to. Templar confessions ranged in content, no doubt depending on the extremities of torture applied. Most confessed to spitting, trampling, and urinating on the cross during the reception ceremony, and denying Christ on the grounds that he was a false prophet. Most also confessed to worshipping an idol called Baphomet, which, depending on who was confessing at the time, was a severed head, or was one head with three faces. In other cases, it was said to be the face of a bearded man, and in others, a woman or a cat. There were also admissions of even killing newborn children. So all these confessions come out, and after Philip in France does it, a whole bunch of other monarchs in other European countries do the same and and torture Templars, and they confess to similar things. Well, this gets the Pope all confused. He didn't expect this at all. So Pope Clement says, hey, we need to have our own papal court. Let's bring in the Grand Master Jacques de Molay." I need to find out from their own lips what's actually going on. They answer to me and me alone. So Clement takes witness from the Grand Master and other Templars, and they all recant what they said under confession. Well, then King Philip, not to be undone, has a very swift reply. He takes 54 Templars that had previously confessed and then unconfessed to the Pope, and he charges them with perjury. He says, you can't say both things. One of the times you're lying, you either lied to the King or you lied to the Pope. And in order to find out the truth, he tortures them yet again, and they confess yet again. And after they confess again, he burns 54 Templars at the stake. Soon after, the Grand Master Jacques de Molay is captured once more, and he's taken to be burned at the stake. And it's said, and this is as historically verifiable as about anything else from that time period, that he says, as he's burning, that King Philip and the Pope will meet him before God within the year. And then Jacques de Molay dies. Interestingly enough, both King Philip and the Pope do die within the year. Pretty spontaneously, actually. So his prophecy came true. The Pope here, the Clement, he seemed like a guy that was just caught in a machine beyond his control. But he did manage one cunning maneuver. He did excommunicate all Templars and officially ended the order. But he said that all of their land and wealth was to be transferred to the other... Order of Knights, the Hospitallers. So, old King Philip, who went to all this trouble to just acquire the wealth of the Knights Templar, didn't actually get any of that. Nevertheless, after just 200 years on the scene, the astronomical shot into the history books and fame of the Knights Templar was just as quickly tortured out of them, and that marks the end of the Knights Templar officially. Now, that being said, the Order was over, but certain knights were still alive. Just because King Philip in France was crazy didn't mean all the other monarchs had the same fervor to kill all the knights. A bunch of the knights lived on, and supposedly a bunch went up to Scotland and started the Scottish Guard, which eventually, supposedly, morphed into the Freemasons, which is where we get a conspiracy theory that interlinks Freemasonry with the Knights Templar. Also, too, supposedly a bunch of the Knights Templar got a hold of their sacred artifacts and hid it in various places. Some say at the Vatican, some say elsewhere. And these artifacts generally tend to be the Ark of the Covenant or the Holy Grail. Or some think that this confession that they all gave, that they worshipped a head, that that head was actually the embalmed head of John the Baptist. But beyond that, we, we really don't have any more facts. So if nothing else, the story of the Knights Templar is a tragedy. It's a tragedy that begins with nine monks who take a vow of poverty in order to safeguard the Holy Land, that escalates in 200 years to be a multi-international banking architectural fighting unit, and then goes down in flames under all these claims of heresy and idol worship, and a bunch of weird stuff. Now, the one thing we do know is that Jacques de Molay, the Grand Master, did think that something was going on in order to ask the Pope to investigate it. Something was happening. We also know from old letters that... This idol, Baphomet, which Satanists now adore and make statues of that are in Detroit, comes from this time period and, it seemingly, is only connected to the Knights Templar. So where did this gossip come from? If King Philip was just slandering the Knights Templar, where did he come up with this idea of Baphomet? Well, it's up to you to decide just how evil the Knights Templar were or are. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. I am your guest host, Dante Stack. Don't forget to like 1001 on Facebook, and please write a review for us on iTunes. That's a big way to help us out. All right, until next time, thanks for listening.
0: Thanks, Dante. We invite you, the listener, to join us at facebook.com 1001heroes with your opinion. We believe here that when the knights veered from their mission to protect Christians and the oppressed and became moneylenders, they brought trouble down upon themselves. As to the claims of devil worship and strange practices within their society, you can get any testimony you want from prisoners who are about to be burned at the stake. And I believe that Joseph of Arimathea, Jesus' uncle, brought the Holy Grail to England after Jesus' crucifixion. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.